Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, author and veteran journalist Brett Christian joins us to talk about his compelling new work of true crime, Stalking Claremont. Working as a news reporter in Perth in the mid-90s, Christian found himself in the thick of what would turn out to be one of Australia's longest and most high-profile manhunts. Stalking Claremont is a riveting story of promising young lives cut short, a city in panic, and an investigation fraught by oversights and red herrings. Now before we start, a quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. My name is Chris Gordon. I am the Programming Manager for Readings. And on behalf of Readings and on behalf of HarperCollins, I am delighted to be able to introduce you tonight to Brett Christian. Brett, newsman, old-time newsman, someone who's been fronting up the print for years and years and years, who's been telling the news how it is, but also someone that is always speaking for the underdog. How are you? I'm great, thanks, Chris, and uh, thanks for having me along, and thanks to everyone joining us this evening. Brett, the very first question that I want to ask about your book, Stalking Clermont, is why write this book? Why write this book now? Well, it's become already part of uh, West Australian and Australian history, and it's yeah. it's it's a story that's it's going to be referred to and live on for decades, if not, you know, to the next century. I mean, I literally think in 10 years' time we're going to watch it on the ABC. Wow. Don't yeah. you think? Don't you think it's that type? Oh, yeah. 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 So, you know, I, I, I thought there were a lot of unanswered questions around this case. When when the judge uh, delivered his verdict, he he said, you know, this, this uh, case has, you know, enthralled people, you know, engaged people like no other that he's seen and he's a very experienced judge and certainly no other that I've seen. I've done a lot of court reporting in the day. Um, you know, the gallery was packed every day. The, yeah. the news was just blanket news coverage of the trial. Um, and of course, this was sort of in some ways an unusual trial in the sense not only had it gone on for so long but there was no jury. No jury, that's right. And so there's yeah. quite a lot of comment made in the media which you can't normally do because you can't tell the jury stuff that they yeah. haven't learned in court. But the book's really not about the, uh, certainly not about the uh, the, uh, the trials. It's no. it's really what, what went on behind the scenes that nobody knew about and now they do. So why, why we, uh, just before we go sort of into examining, you know, some of the characters and some of the, uh, I don't know, uh, the tricks and the and the not tricks, I guess, the trickery of the macro kind of investigation unit. Can you tell us a little, because you're a Perth fan, can you tell us what the city was like in 1996 when it when it first sort of erupted? What what sort of experience was the? How did the city deal with this? That a young woman has gone missing in a in a city that's always prided itself on being close knit. Well, it was rigid with fear, you know. Yeah. That's that's. Do you uh, remember it very clearly? Yeah, you know, very like it was yesterday. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it was it was people's safety. It all all of a sudden vanished. You know, there are you know many other events like that. You know, bombings and war, nine eleven, those things that that all of a sudden your, your sense of safety is stripped away. But in a, in this case, in the most sinister way, it was like 
some phantom was coming in, coming in amongst us and just plucking girls off the street. It was or young women off the street. It was shocking. And so it was something that people just talked about all the time. It, yeah, they, they talked about nothing else, and yeah. um, especially the people who had some contact with with one or, one or other of the of the victims. And, and there were it's a close knit community, and of course there were many, many, many people knew them or their families or. Yeah. school or played sport or been to university yeah uh, or, or been out clubbing with them that, that was yeah. Yeah. I mean the world has changed so dramatically from 1996 I mean this is nearly you know 25 years ago I mean so when we think back to 1996 it, it's such a different era isn't it like not everybody had mobile phones there was less traffic uh, there was no uber that's right. There was there were your options were actually few. You're quite right. Um, everyone assumed, you know, wonders why they just didn't call a cab or an Uber on their phone. They didn't have one. You know, yeah. there, were, there were there were call boxes. Uh, you remember the phones at the time were great clunky things and incredibly expensive, um, and you, you really couldn't carry one while dancing. You know, be like having a, a brick in your pocket. It That's was, right. So um, there there were. They found other strategies. You know, the, the, the young people who'd been out nightclubbing and been to the pub found other strategies to get home. Uh, um, we had one was to try to hail a cab, which was became very futile. Um, and so quite often they just walk. Yeah. Yeah. And because of that felt safe before 1996, you were Perth was basically a, a big country town. It felt safe. And especially Claremont, you know, which is a its own sort of ecosystem uh, where it's a bit know, ritzy, isn't it? It's a bit posh. It is, yeah. And, yep. and it's, as I say in the book, it's, it's where where uh, young women as girls went shopping with their mums. So mm. they're on home turf. There was not nothing to worry about. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I enjoyed about reading your book, I mean, when I say enjoyed, one of the uh, reasons that I respect your work so much in regard to this is that you did give special attention to the young women. Often when I think that crimes happen against young women, so much attention is put on to the perpetrator. So can you tell us a little bit, for example, about Sarah, who was the first young woman that went missing? You're quite right. You know, they, they, were, they were living you know, beings. They were, they were you know, people who li lived amongst us. Well, Sarah was you know, 18 years old. She'd, Babies. She'd, yeah, she was a child, you know. Um, she'd been to school in the country. Her father was a shearing contractor and she'd been to a primary school, a tiny little town called Darken. Mm. so small the streets don't even, the, the houses don't even have numbers. You just, just uh, go to the Smith house. Um, and then she, when she went to high school, she joined her sister at boarding school, which is uh, two suburbs away from, from Claremont, and so she was very familiar with with yeah, the area. This was her neighbourhood. Her neighbourhood, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, her father was particularly worried about safety for his two daughters. Mm -hmm. He bought them a, a unit uh, and a car um, each, and they, you know, make sure they get home. All, all he did everything he could do, yeah, and, then and then worried. He said, you know, as you do. Um, and he had plenty to worry about, as it turned out. Unfortunately, yeah. it's ruined the poor family's life. 
oh, you can't, you don't understand how you would ever bounce back from that. No, they don't. No. Um, uh, and you spoke to people in the family. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, they they were devastated and still are. You know, um, it really drives home this idea that there's no such thing as closure. You know, there are just milestones in in, yeah. in the in the story, and, and one of the milestones was the trial, and uh, one of them, well, going back further, one of them was the the arrest of of Bradley Edwards next yeah. to his trial, next to his conviction, then his sentence. But we'll get to that. I mean, but the pain's still there. It's just it's just uh, they had a feeling maybe the justice was done and that's about it. I mean, your heart goes out to them because it's been, you know, 24 years later they get fired. You know, like this guy, the trial only ended last year, for God's sake. That's right. So poor Sarah, you know, she was out with friends and she had lots of close friends, very popular, very smart, cool girl. Um, yep. And she... She went out a lot. She went to Claremont a lot, and she knew knew the bouncers at the at the yeah. club, the nightclub. And um, she she left alone, as it turned out. And one of her friends tried to talk her into waiting. She said, oh, no, "I was going to get a cab." And she she walked five hundred meters to where there was a phone booth and called a cab. And one of the things that really still strikes me is they played her last phone call to to Swan Taxis. It's sort of poignant. Little voice. Oh, oh, look! In these situations, I mean, I you just you cannot, you cannot imagine what it's like for that family. Those poor people. No, but, you know, yeah, they had to um, identify. Actually, the police, the police asked them to listen to the call to make sure it was her. She gave her name. Yeah. Well. So, and she crossed the road, and uh, the cab arrived only a very short time later, and. The driver looked up the street where she should have been. She wasn't there. Nobody was there. Uh, and she just, phew, it's like she'd gone into another dimension. It's weird. But Perth only in some ways considered that there was a serial killer on the loose when the next young woman went missing, when yes. Jane went missing, yeah. It had to be connected. You know, that, yeah. everyone, you know there's one, one person doing this. And that's because it had the same sort of MO, is that right? That's right, yeah. And walking along and she disappears. And and they, they look similar, they get the similar age, they've been out by themselves at night. Um uh, and there were so many similarities. Yeah. It looked like someone was targeting them. Um and then of course there was a third that there was Jane Rimmer disappeared and then her no one really knew what happened to her. Um you you, you fear the worst, um, hope for the best, but of course you, you know the worst when her body turned up. Oh, God. And you as a sort of a newsman, you're across all of this all the time. I know that you had stints in Melbourne and Sydney, but at the time of these terrible disasters, where were you based? Well, we're in the next suburb in uh, in Shenton Park. Which oh, is Jesus. So really, suburb, yeah. One suburb up from Claremont. And I, I left um, daily newspapers way back in uh, 79, 77, and... Um, Started my own suburban paper, and, yep. and actually, the geographical heart of our circulation area is Claremont. So, uh, you know, we I, I live and work. In you the live area. and breathe it. You were right there. Yeah. So even even if I wanted to avoid it, I couldn't. It was all around me. Yeah. And did it feel like that it was the sort of case that had people just uh, 
coming up with theories all the time. I mean, even the police force, when you think about this being the most expensive kind of operation that's ever existed in Australian time, like just, you know, that everyone was throwing everything they could have. They had, what, 100 people or something? That's right. Yeah, there, there were 100 people on the on the case and there were appeals for information and... Of course, they got inundated with information. Well, this is what I'm thinking. I mean, every every everyone's got a theory. Hmm. I mean, yeah. you and I have got theories. Of course, no one wants yeah. to hear them. The police yeah. don't want to hear them. But you know, there we are. A number of people who who call the police, and a lot of them call call us as well at the paper. Right. And I've been mean, hours and hours on the phone with 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 people who oh, my neighbour's strange. He went out that night and. He's always washing his car and he's a bit dodgy and, you know, a bit, all, all the suspicion, people became suspicious of of other people uh, looking at them sideways. And I wonder if that's the that's the killer. So the police had to look at look into every one of these tips. Um, and what about, I mean, you probably did too in a way. If you've got people calling up you and making these sort of stories, you would have to then just just be sure... Yeah, just hear, listen, hear them through, and yep. um, um, lucky I had a bit of insight into into some information that was not released by the police. And I could figure out pretty quickly if if the people really did know something. So that that was that was a great a great bonus. I never ever told anyone this, but I but I I did actually know a bit of detail that I wasn't supposed to know, but it, it helped me to get rid of people. But there were others who had very plausible stories, and I believe. A number of the young women who rang me about encounters with people had either encountered the serial killer and got yep. away, or or someone acting very similarly, very very similarly. I mean, I guess with that whole sense of, of theories that are coming out about that were coming out about who it was and and how it happened, is that the, the police would also be dealing with a whole lot of copycats. You know, like, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. God, awful, awful. Well, it's a really, really strange phenomenon. When there's a high-profile case, they get people who confess to the crime when they, when they haven't done it. So that's that's another real problem. Can we just take a little so, moment to that, think about that? Like, that's bonkers. It is nuts, isn't it? That's yeah, they nuts. get quite a few, right? Yeah. And, of course, that one of the things that does, it stops the police uh, or hinders them in, in releasing everything they know about the crime because they have to hold something back to make sure that when they vet these people that that, that, they, that they're not the person who did it. That they, they need what they call esoteric knowledge, knowledge about the crime that nobody nobody else, that they, only the perpetrator could know. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's what they, they hold bits back about it. But in this case, it didn't help. Didn't help. So for a long time they suspected it was someone else. They expected it was three other people, um, and, and one in particular. Well, yeah. well the, the, the one of first one, Paul Barr, honestly. Anyway, yeah. take us through it. The, the first person to come under suspicion was someone I knew quite well professionally, not a friend or anything. But it was the the mayor of Claremont. I dealt with him. I dealt with him for ten years. Um, of course, you're you're the you're the the man telling the stories. You'd be first on his. He'd be on his speed dial. Yeah, no that's way. right. Yeah, Tips and drink, they call him, and all, he he was also the president of the Council for Civil Liberties. Amazingly enough, um, and did you like him? 
he's okay. Yeah. He, he's, I respect him a lot. I mean, he's, he's intelligent and he's very truthful. Um, he, he, being, being president for, girls, for civil liberties, they got a lot of uh, people coming to them saying, oh, I've been mistreated by this authority and that authority or the police or, or whatever. And, and a lot, of, as a newsman, that they're, they're often very interesting stories. A lot of them turned out to be, you know, to have substance. And so in, in a way we work together on those. I mean, not, not as, not as colleagues, but, but he, he supplied information. We checked it out. And if it checked out, you know, we'd write a story. So it would, I knew him quite well. And I, I also knew he'd, he'd never, ever lied to me. I mean, he's one of those people who's, who can't help himself. He's, he's, you know, he's almost got like a type of Tourette's or something. He's saying. He opens, opens his mouth and out, out comes a stream of words. And it's not possible for him to conceal anything. So when the police targeted him, oh, this is just a joke. I mean, it can't, can't be. And then you think, oh, well, everyone says that when they catch these these crooks, whatever. So, oh, he's the least person, least likely person to suspect. But anyway, they, there was no evidence at all. There was there was suspicion. Um, and he his his life, his relationships and his careers, or he had a number of careers, all went down the toilet <laughs> from that moment on. Of I mean, it was, it you know, it's not but hard to ruin someone's reputation by saying he'd been questioned for murder and he won't cooperate. And that wasn't true either. But anyway, that's that's what got published. Oh, um, the shame of it all. So what, that's just, it's terrible, isn't it? And what was the feeling then? I mean, there you are on the sort of following different stories and different leads and hearing all about that. Was the atmosphere in the town changed during that time? Were people, it was. I mean, this was, you know, to have such a spokesperson under the... Uh, under question would be really terrifying. It, it was, you know, he, he's he's you know the the civic figure, civic head of Claremont. You know? mm. it was, and here he is, everyone pointing their finger at him. Literally, it's oh, he's that's that bloke that the police think did it. You oh, know? Jesus. Um, so I mean, the other there were there were change, very noticeable changes at Claremont. There were fewer people in the streets. There were yeah. far fewer people at the at the night spots. Yeah, um, the men began to outnumber women by. By lots, um, the the uh, the public or the owner of the local hotel, um, he had so few customers. He used to give free drinks to his friends to, oh, to make it look like he was busy, you know. Um, so it was that it was that dire. Like it became a bit desperate times in a way. Mm. Everything changed. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, and young women would always travel in twos and threes, holding hands. You know, you actually see them doing this, or they. They they not go out without blokes, and that that was took away all that all that their fun filled years, you know, that were, were gone. Yeah, yeah. So what about the other people that were suspected? So the mayor. Well, the next one was oh, the, it was the mayor and his uh, I guess civil liberties client, a guy called Stephen Ross, who was a taxi driver. And yeah, I don't know that they had a bit of a hard time, didn't they too? The taxi, oh, yeah. but everyone thought it was taxi drivers. Well, exactly, you're right. It, because they, it was, they figured that certainly Sarah Spears and and Kira Glennon, um, it was considered that each one of them had been looking for a taxi when they disappeared. So this very strong theory developed that it was a rogue taxi driver. He was you know, picking up uh, young women on their own and whisking them off into the night and you know, basically murdering them. And... Um, so 
suspicion fell hugely on taxi drivers. They, not only did their business dry up, dry up, but the police you know, impounded their cars and did forensic tests on them and did, did DNA at all, you know, thousands, literally thousands of, of drivers. Um, and they searched their criminal records. Something 75, I think, got the sack, lost their taxi licences because in this trawl of records, they found that some of them had, you know, sexually oriented crimes in their backgrounds. So, you know, they're, they're, they're live. We were starving, was, was what the, the head of the taxi uh, union said. Yeah, there it goes. And this is even before Uber. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. And so... And so Ross was a taxi driver. So, I mean, that he fitted in nicely with that theory that, that um, fortunately for him, he had an alibi, um, and he, but he knew he knew um, uh, Peter Wagers. So this theory developed in some section of the police that that um, Stephen Ross was acting as a catcher for for, for Peter Wagers. He was taking girls to him. Oh God! So people's yeah. imagination started to yeah. I did, and then then the then the police completely switched gears, and they. They thought that they really had their man because they they, be, they were of course um, patrolling undercover around Claremont. They had you know, unmarked cars and uh, police not in uniform. So this uh, is Lance Williams that you're talking about now. Yeah, they saw they saw this guy, and he was doing he was doing a bit of circle work in the car. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And he was he was he watch he'd watch young women and. Um, see where they went, and then you go around the block and watch them again. It looks dodgy, and 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 right, the, it is dodgy. It, it is, is dodgy. The police were right to, to target him, no doubt about it. Absolutely not about it. So, did you ever meet him? Did you ever interview him? Not at length. No, I, I, I really I met him. Uh, I interviewed his parents. Um, uh, others interviewed him. He was he was ambushed outside work by an enormous sort of gaggle of, of, of reporters, television reporters at one at one point when suspicion really rose about him and he just stood there and I've seen the seen the footage, you know, he just asked all the questions calmly, said, Oh, you know, it's not me and the police have got a job to do and I'll help me where I can. It was bizarre because he knew they were following him and he had this he was very rigid in his routines and he would, you know, Get up in the morning, get in his car, drive to work out near the airport, do his job right in the dot of five. He get back in his car and drive home. Sometimes he'd stop at a shop or a library, and the police would be following him everywhere. I mean, one of his workmates said to said to him, um, "Why don't you just sell your car and get a lift for the police?" Um, <laughs> uh, they just actually couldn't be anything more Australian about that, could they? <laughs> what are you doing, mate? Might as well get a free lift. <laughs> but, but he, he it got to the point where he got worried that they'd think he was up to something if he if he diverted if he went to a work function or something so he'd call the police in advance and said oh by the way I'm, I'm, I'm going to he'd tell them what he was doing so they wouldn't be put out and then uh, of course he never in some ways never got the justice of seeing justice being held I mean he died he died yes before he died there'd been the arrest and arrest uh, at the time he died, but there hadn't been a trial. Yeah. Golly. And so then when it came to looking at the way that this was investigated, 
What's what would you give that investigation out of ten? Looking back with it, with all the glory of retrospect. Yeah, look, I hesitate to be an armchair expert, and I, I've not made judgments in the book. I've just let unfolded, let the story unfold as it unfolded. That people can make up their own minds, but it was a pretty low score. The early days was a, a very low score. Uh, um, there were mistakes made that were. The one would think. Made. I mean, there you are. You think about down to Perth in 1996 where it really is like this country town, you're in the middle of nowhere and these tremendously dreadful crimes happen. I mean, there's not a lot of experience in dealing with something like this. No. One of the things that I that makes me cranky is that there was there are basic police procedures when there's a serious crime. Yeah. And one, one of them is to, you know, if, if you get a clue about something happening in the neighbourhood, you go and knock on every door and interview every yeah, person. Yeah, of course. If they're not home, you go back when they come home from work. Right. And I mean, isn't again. That... Yeah. There were two instances I know of that that was not done. Uh, and in both instances, it could have possibly led to, his, led to a really good lead or even his capture. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, and that's wrong, you know. that That's a lesson. I'm not here to teach cops lessons, but, boy, I hope they, I hope they teach that at, at police school these days. So this sort of the whole major crime squad, they, they call themselves macro, they've imp- employed so many people, they've received at, at its peak there was, I think that you say, over 100 members in, in sort of 10 different teams or something like that. Is, is that right? There, were, there were, certainly were different teams, yes. Yeah. yeah. And one, one of the ironic things, of course, it was called macro, you know, the big picture. Yeah. It had a very narrow tunnel vision. Yeah, yeah. Do you reckon, just as sort of as a buy, do you reckon that investigations, people that lead investigations, I mean, certainly back, you know, 20 years ago, hadn't actually considered their own prejudice in a way? You know, like people don't know, they don't, they're not as open as they could be to collecting so much information because they haven't examined themselves. Do you reckon there's something about that? It's amazing you should say I've written an entire book on this subject. <laughs> it's called Presumed Guilty. And that's, it's actually about, it was prior, well prior to this, it, it, it's about the tendency of police to jump to conclusions and, yeah. to, and to target the wrong people based on their gut feeling, based on their, look, I'm a policeman, I've, I've had 25 years experience. When, when I see a crook, I know he's a crook. Yeah, bloke lies to me. I know he's lying. It is simply not true. And modern, modern science, modern psychology tells you that we're no good at finding that out. You know, we're, yeah. we're no good at we're no good at determining someone's telling a lie. Surely, no. the only truth in the the whole entire world is of humanity is that everyone lies. Yeah, surely yeah. that's the only truth. And everyone's bad at making at picking the right. You know. Making a good judgment. Well, look look at the divorce rate. That's yeah. the most important decision you make in your life. There's a forty percent divorce rate. You know what? That's gold. I'm going to use that at every single dinner party that I attend in the next six months. You're absolutely right. <laughs> the optimism of everyone. Yeah. yeah I don't know all the arrogance, whatever. But it you're right. Good. Yeah, that's yeah. So you hear that? So the, the macro, these people with the big picture, they, when they're investigating, I mean, they, there was a lot of criticism throughout the entire time, wasn't it? It wasn't like uh, 
It wasn't like everyone was behind the police. Well, they were largely. I mean, the, right. the, 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 the media largely was um, very, very much... Um, they were sold on Lance William being the murderer. Lance yeah, William being the murderer. And they, they were told things behind the scenes that, that made them believe this and gave them the, gave them the confidence to, to, you know, to out him in public, really, to identify him. He identified himself, um, which is his prerogative. Uh, but some, some outlets named him, some didn't. But everyone knew who he was. Every, every, there was no absolutely no doubt. And, and those of us, there were only a couple. Uh, one was Liam Bartlett, uh, from, who finished up with 60 Minutes, and he, he's a Perth uh, native. Um, we sort of crossed paths in our investigation. We realised we both we were both on the outer with everybody in the place yeah. for, 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 for daring to question this, to be for being sceptical. Yeah. And was there any, I mean, did you have, to, did you suffer any ramifications because of that? In your position there, I mean, there you are in some ways also a civil man. Like, you know, you have got the local newspaper. You're, you know, everybody in the streets. I'm so used to people hating me that <laughs> I can't believe anyone could hate you. Actually, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> there was no, you, I mean, I imagine that you would be the type of person that would be so far just thinking so many different things at all times that perhaps you wouldn't have noticed. Yeah. No, Look, like, like, like every journalist, I'm led by the truth and the facts, and that's that's what I've always concentrated on in this story as, as every other. You know, if, if someone comes up with a, a verifiable fact, well, great. You know, that, that, let's see where that, yeah. where that leads. And, and what was startling about this case was that nobody ever came up with one. There was not one, one shred of forensic evidence uh, and not one shred of any other physical evidence. For instance, if if Lance Williams had had murdered three young women um, in the way that they were murdered, and the police knew how they were murdered, they never didn't tell anyone. It, it wasn't revealed until the trial. Um, there would be blood everywhere. It would be terrible, you know. And and there is there is no way an amateur murderer could clean the, up every trace of it out of his car, his clothes, his fingernails, his, his house. Yeah. You know, they, they would have found something that, you know, even nine, with 19, 1996 technology, they would have found it. And yeah. it, wasn't, it, was, it wasn't a scrap yeah. of it. They looked damn hard. I can tell you, they stripped his car of carpets and, you know, the boot lining and all took it, sent all his clothes off to the FBI and in the States. And they looked and looked and looked and didn't. There was not nothing. There was nothing. Not a hair, not a fibre, nothing. God. So we're, we're sort of, I mean, I could literally talk to you all night, but we are almost running out of time. So oh, I feel so like <laughs> it's gone so quickly, hasn't it? Like, honestly, yeah. we haven't. Uh, everyone that's listening, we have literally just touched. It's like we're at the tip of the iceberg of things that we've been talking about because the way that Brett talks about it in his book is systematic is consistent and for all of you that like to follow enormous crime stories this is the type of book that you will be quoting at dinner parties because it makes so much sense it's a logical book that's what you are in some ways you're a logical man and you have just gone ta-da, 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 and I'm grateful for that but before you go I do want to speak to you about the bloke that did the job 
the bloke that actually Bradley Edwards, who's ended up, I think he's only got 40 years prison. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. So tell us a bit about the court case. There you were sitting in there for days and days and days. Well, you're right. I sat there for seven months and uh, a lot of that time I was looking at Edwards. I, I and what did you think? I wanted, well, I wanted to see how he reacted and how, um, if he reacted and and this, and and whether whether the theory about whether you can tell if someone is a crook or not. Yeah. True. And you couldn't. I mean, the, the scariest thing about that whole thing was how ordinary he looked. He was yeah. just like a bloke in the street. He sort of, he, he had, a, he's got a rounder face now than he had when he was younger and and quite bland and cheerful. And in fact, I, there, there was an episode where he didn't know he was on, on the court camera. He was, it was one of the, it was a very short hearing and the camera was on him in, in jail and he was, he was laughing and joking and carrying on. Um, and he was, he was leading the, conversation and leading the jokes and he was very animated and nothing like your pity cod. He just was absolutely rigid. He just stared ahead. He never he never once looked at what I call the corner of pain, which is where all the relatives sat, the relatives of the victims and, and some of his actual victims who, who survived. Never once in seven months did he look. What was it like for you going into that court case for seven into that courtroom for seven months, like every day? I mean, I don't know what that would do to someone. It was interesting. Uh, it, it became your workplace, you know. You'd know everybody and um, you get not, well, you know, not everybody. You certainly got to know a lot of the regulars who were there and chatted away and, uh, you know, how was your weekend? So oh, it was just, just like going to work. It was you know? like that, yeah, right. And then, then it was starting. A lot, of the, a lot of the evidence was riveting. It was absolutely fascinating. But a lot of it was mind-numbingly um, the legal sort of legal and 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 the the forensic stuff was was mind numbing, you know. The, especially the fibre evidence, where they went through every one of I think ninety six fibres, and each each examination of it took about two hours of court time. You, thought, you wouldn't believe that, that it oh, was could be like that. But anyway, it was it was. Um, uh, look, I wouldn't have missed it because it was. To, to understand, you know, human nature and and to see the just humanity in action at, at its rawest is 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 extraordinarily interesting and and, and not not in a sort of voyeuristic way, but it, but just as a human being, is just to to see it that way. Is, is... Of course, and I mean, I imagine that you. I mean, you would have been watching everything. You were watching him. You were watching the judge. You were watching the audience. You're watching that quarter of pain, like those those poor families that sat yeah. there also with you for seven months. Yeah, just right behind. Twenty five years later, you know, like twenty years later, I think, oh, these people could never be free. No, no, and you know, he, Edward, you asked me about Edward. Oh. He he reacted once or twice. He when when the guilty verdicts came down, he he shook his head slightly, just slightly like that, and when 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 he was. When he was found guilty of, um, of Wilf, the first count of Wilf and Levy, this is as animated as he got. He just dropped his chin into his chest, just for a very, just momentarily, and that's that was it. He there's a psychologist involved in the case. Yeah, sorry, he was involved. Uh, you know, back in the Claremont days, and he said, "Look, I, I think I think he's convinced himself he hasn't done it." You know, <laughs> you know it's. Um, 
Do read the book because you'll find out that this man has, of course, committed other crimes as well that they found out about, and it's all detailed in there. But just before we finish up, now that you have completed this book, now that this case that's been part of your life, that's now part of your own personal history for so long, what does it feel like? Do you feel, have you got a sort of a sense of relief that it's over? Is there a feeling that justice has been done within your own heart? Look, I, I think justice has been done, and I, I think he'll he'll um, he'll die in prison. As, as as a lawyer friend of mine said, you know, the attorney general who makes a, the decision about his parole is still in primary school. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's actually quite reassuring, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. And look, there there was a you know a real sense of a full stop after yeah. after that verdict. So look. That you can draw a line under this. You don't forget it. But but um, justice has been done. There would be would have been nothing worse if he'd been found not guilty, and then and it remained an unsolved crime. Remain one of the great Perth mysteries. I'm so glad that it was resolved. I'm so glad for the people of Perth. And it would have except for one thing. It would have it would have remained resolved except for the bravery of one victim. That's right, but I, I don't want you to say that because I want everyone to read the book. I don't want you to say anything at all. Do not give that away right now. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you're working on now or are you just having a, a bit of a deep sigh and, and looking around? Uh, look, I'm just yeah, running on the spot at the moment. Um, yeah, having a look around. This idea for, for another book popped into my head, but I... I think my wife would be seeking a psychiatrist in the book <laughs> if I had to do this again. <laughs> it takes a toll, I think, writing a book like that. It does. And look, she and her family have been incredibly supportive and, and, my, and my workmates as well, and you know, covering for me when I should have been doing work and I was fiddling with the book. No, well, I'm really glad that you did because it's a story that uh, that needed needed a, a complete version like that that you have handed to us i know that there's been podcasts and other sort of writers about it but this seems to me the complete picture and for that on behalf of australia i thank you really i mean we need people like you to tell us the truth it's an epic right chris yeah <laughs> <laughs> what a bloody treat it was to talk to you all the way over there in perth thank you so much for joining us Congratulations on this book. I know it's going to do very well in that sort of sad sort of way. It is going to do very well. And uh, you've been one of the most gracious uh, guests that I've had and I appreciate it so much. Thank you, thank you, Chris, and thanks for everyone for tuning in. To you all out there, I do applaud you to go out and read this book. It won't give you nightmares, I promise, but it will make you reconsider uh, the way that justice is brought to our shores. Anyway, good night, everyone. Good night and thank you. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.